This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today, I have another HITS instructor with me. I have Dr. Marcella Ridgway is with me. How are you today, doctor? Good. How are you doing? Good. Um, I wanted to bring you on today so we could kind of talk about uh, some of the, you're going to teach several different classes at HITS in Chicago this year. And it's uh, somebody somebody that uh, I have been seeing at HITS for years and years. And I apologize. I never really stopped for several years. We're so busy when we're there and kind of got to know you any better. So it was, I think, a couple of years ago that you and I stood and I realized that you have a very diverse background and and uh, you're very much into the veterinarian side of this. So if you don't mind kind of talking a little bit about what your background is and what you do for the university. Sure. So I am a, a small animal internal medicine specialist. Uh, I am a veterinarian and what my career has entailed is undergraduate coursework to get ready for vet school and then vet school itself is a four-year program. After that, I was licensed as a veterinarian, but I did additional training as a small animal intern and then a small animal internal medicine resident for specialty training in a very focused area. Uh, and that is that is where I practice at this point. I have I, I have to add up how many years, but I think it's uh, it's close to 30 years now that that I've been doing this. And uh, I'm at the University of Illinois, so I'm involved with the vet school and also training the veterinarians of the future, both the students in their general training and also the interns and residents who are going to go on and specialize. So there are a lot of things that I do within the profession. So at the university, do you have like a clinic there or do you work at a separate clinic? We have a, a teaching hospital, so it is a full-service hospital. We do have general care available, but a lot of what we do is specialty care. So it's you know we have surgeons who specialize in orthopedics, surgeons who specialize in soft tissue surgery, um, us in internal medicine. We have a veterinary dermatologist. So it's very people here often are are focused on a particular specialty, sure. which lets them emphasize that area and get lots of of additional experience in that area. So when things are very difficult to manage, they have the additional training and experience from which to draw. So that's probably a fantastic resource for handlers all over you know, that area. I'm sure we have um, Colorado State University. It sounds kind of similar when, it's, when one of the handlers' dogs is doing something that's a little bit beyond normal for the, for the vets here. They'll usually send us up to CSU to get you know, extra treatment sounds kind of like that's what you're doing too. Right. And I think it's important for handlers and others working with the dogs to understand that, you know, veterinarians are trained to cover so many different things. Yeah. And uh, there are also differences, not just in, in training, it's, but sending someone on when something, when there's a patient who has a problem that is particularly complex or perhaps requires specialized equipment, those are often the times that patients are referred to, to specialists sure. for specialty care. And uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's really 
uh, it's teamwork. It's, you know, it's not separate from what primary care physicians or veterinarians are doing. It's, it's kind of an adjunct. So, and there are many specialties available. I think, you know, probably sometimes internal medicine, but also often surgery and uh, physical therapy and rehabilitation are often areas where law enforcement canines will, will benefit from care under those specialists. Sure. Do you have very many uh, uh, regular clients that are, are police dog handlers in your practice? We do, and I think that is an area where we are, we are building. We actually have put together a program for law enforcement canines that uh, handlers and, and the dogs can come in and really get a, uh, a package of care, uh, both time-wise and cost-wise, to, to be beneficial. So, you know, th- these are dogs that really, there's, there's not the luxury of time off the street for them to come in multiple times for some things that might be accomplished in one visit. So we're really focused on, on accommodating, getting, getting the dog in, getting things done, and getting them back out as long as they're healthy to do so where they need to be. And, and also trying to build a program where preventative care uh, becomes very doable um, for for the dogs that are coming sure. in. And we just had a, a couple months ago, a group of new dogs that came in for an initial evaluation. Basically, are there any major health issues that are obvious at this point that would tell us this is a dog we need to not really get into the program because down the road we're going to have problems or maybe we're already having problems. And then the plan is as those dogs, you know, the dogs that that are successful in their training program, there are some additional health sure. procedures that they'll come back to complete. Sure. And I don't, I don't want to get too far off what we've talked about, what we're going to talk about today, but possibly in a future show, um, I'd like to talk to you about exactly what you're talking about. The, um, when you buy a new dog, how thorough of a health check is, do you advise doing um, before sure. you put that dog into service? And I know there's kind of Differences of opinion about that. So maybe we'll, we'll schedule that. And for our listeners, they'll know that coming up, we'll be able to sit down and kind of get your opinions on that. Good. And I know um, in, in addition to how busy you are, which sounds like very busy, you have some working dogs. So can you kind of touch on that too? Um, I have for a number of years been showing dogs in competition obedience and more recently, so maybe about, I guess, eight years ago or so, I became involved with Search and Rescue. Uh, and that was, even though the, what I felt working with my dogs before with competition and obedience was uh, it, it just what great feeling from working as a team um, with my dogs. Yeah. Uh, when I met folks in search and rescue, um, it was like I'd never done anything with dogs before. It's such a compelling activity, such a compelling group of people, and that really is a lot of my initial connection with um, with dogs in corrections and law enforcement because the trainers I was involved with were in law enforcement and corrections, and that really has been part of what took me to hits was not necessarily the veterinary aspects of what law enforcement canines are doing, but more the training, you know, and just the, the very 
the complexities, the training for very specific activities. And, you know, the, it, for me with that has been just a greater and greater bond. Um, you know, the teamwork that's necessary, uh, you know, is, is incredible. And that's uh, what actually got me to my first HITS conference. Um, and then from there, I think, again, you know, when I, when I see people working in this way with, with dogs and the devotion and the teamwork um, that's there, then I started, well, what can I bring to the table? Sure. And one of the things with my position here at the University of Illinois, I train veterinarians. And while we do a really good job of training veterinarians to handle medical problems, I think we lag behind, and I, we as in the veterinary profession, lag behind in recognizing a lot of times what these dogs are doing. Because sure. if I deal with their medical or surgical issues and return them to general health, that may not be good enough because sure. they, their activities are so extreme. And I think one of the things in, in having a foot in the dog world and a foot in the veterinary medical world is... Um, really trying to establish uh, dialogues back and forth because veterinarians need to know what handlers and trainers know. And I think also the other way around, I think there is a lot that we as veterinarians can do to help provide specific information for dogs that are doing particular jobs to make sure, sure that they're able to do the, optimize what they're able to do. Sure. And I've, I've done this for a long time and handled quite a few different dogs. And I can tell you, um, we've bounced around through a few vets in our area for, for different reasons. The, what, the vets that um, seem to be the most open-minded, even if they don't have a working dog background, the ones who take the time to, to see what we're doing. We've had vets even come out to our training and just watch what we're doing and, and take that time. That makes such a big difference. I think besides opening up the communication, it gets it gives them a real understanding that it's not just a pet. This this dog's a, a an athlete, so he, he's probably got different care um, based on that. I would imagine. Well, I think the other thing is, you know, that I think having an idea and actually seeing what the dogs are doing, there's some additional considerations that come up. So, for example, if someone comes in and says, you know this dog used to be able to do X, Y, Z, and now it's only doing X and not doing X very well. Well, when I go and see what these dogs are doing, I have some additional ideas of what might be going wrong. Whereas, you know, a, a dog that's not act, that active yeah. is not really going to be doing injuring itself sure. in that same way. Yeah. So what type of dog are you handling with your search and rescue duties? Um, I, well, another thing that I do is rescue, um, not just for people, but for sure. homeless dogs. So um, I I kind of get the dog that I get a lot of times. And uh, for me, that's been a lot of the excitement is I, I get dogs with different personalities sure. and different issues to work with. Um, I have worked, the dogs that I have trained and shown have been retrievers and border collies and mixes thereof. I currently have a border collie and a flat-coated retriever, uh -huh. um, and those are my two working dogs. Nice. Outstanding. And you've been, we've talked about this before the show, you've only missed one hits out of this. This year will be our 13th, so you've been to uh, 11 out of the previous 12. Is that right? 
I don't know that I started with number one. I don't know at what that point was, I uh, came in. Orlando, but, uh, number one. I don't know if that was yeah, one or Denver. Was the next one my first? My first hits was St. Louis. Okay, so that was so. Probably- I I'm a little more recent than yeah. that, but I've been a dedicated attendee since. So yeah, and I always I you know I and like I said I know we talk every year a little bit, but to be honest, I wasn't I, I didn't know exactly how deep your background was. So I'm sure glad that uh, you finally got me to stop when I'm running around crazy at hits, you know, and got to <laughs> got to know each other a little bit better because I'm really looking forward. This year we have you teaching. Uh, you're going to do uh, breed dis- breed predisposition to disease, and then an update on bloat, as well as a class on practical canine anatomy. Um, mm-hmm. what and else? there's also a biology of scent. Oh, I'm sorry. There, there, you're right. I didn't have that one down. So let's go down those real quick. What what will be the biology of scent? What are you going to talk about in that class? So I, I, I'm going to back up and talk, okay. if I can, about yeah what really prompted me to put that presentation together is that, you know, I hear people talking about scent in a way that, you know, it it almost sounds like it's magical. And uh, I think now we have, and at HITS there have been a number of, of people presenting about chemistry and how that relates to, uh, to what we're doing with detection dogs. And my focus is more on, well, what happens in the dog? Because it really, it, there, yes, there's a lot we don't know, but there actually is a lot that we do know about what happens to an odor molecule that allows it to be registered for the dog. And so uh-huh. I, my talk is going to be looking at, well, let's look at some of the basic pathways. And I don't, you know, I don't, I'm sure that many people can go and work detection dogs without having that background of what happens biologically in the dog. But to me, I, I really believe for me and I assume for others that the more I know about something, the better job I can do working with it. Absolutely. And I think, for, you know, for me, um, you know, I think I know about, I think I know about odor because I put a source somewhere yeah. and yet my dog says it's not there. Or my dog says something's there when I can't find it. And I think that having an understanding of some of the biology sometimes can help me. I I would summarize it and say, for the most part, help me understand that my dog is working and doing a great job. It's just that my understanding of scent and odor isn't very good uh, because I'm thinking about it with my head and not my nose. Yeah. I think that'll be a great class if we pair that with uh, some of the scientific part of what odor is doing. And I think, I agree with you that I think if you're working a detection or a patrol dog, that um, a, a general or even deeper understanding of that is nothing but positive. And it's it's been really fun to to put that together as well. So good. And then you're also going to do an anatomy class. What what, what type of topics are you going to touch on in that? I, I'm I'm really excited about that one. I've never seen anything a presentation that really addresses in a systematic way, what happens when we are, one, using the equipment we use, or two, the handling techniques that we use, what's happening relative to the dog's anatomic structure? And I think that's, again, something that can be really important in deciding how to use some of these um, techniques or some of the equipment in a safe way is understanding what's happening when I do that. So if I'm applying a choke collar or a dominant dog collar, or, you know, if I'm using a muzzle, 
um, when I when I'm trying to pick a harness, what are some of the things that uh, can be good considerations from the standpoint of the dog and how the dog is put together and how the dog is functioning when it's doing bite work, um, tracking, uh, yeah. whenever we're using the, the equipment or some of the techniques that might be employed. What are the risks? What are, based on the anatomy, what might be some of the best ways to actually apply the technique or the piece of equipment? And, uh, you know, it's, uh, Basically focusing on collars, muzzles, brake sticks, harnesses. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there's no way to really cover all the bases. And I think also, yeah. you know, there are so many different types of harnesses and different vests, et cetera. But just to kind of get a, a basic idea of what's underneath what we're doing for the dog, because that can really make a difference in using something safely or not safely or using something that's effective versus if the placement's wrong, it's not going to be effective. And here are some of the reasons why. And I think the, the title of the talk is Practical Canine Anatomy, and I don't think it really, uh, you know, I didn't really have a good way to capture how that was really going to be yeah. pertinent for handlers, but it's mostly focusing, well, not here's the dog's anatomy, but when you're, you know, sure. how, does, how does equipment relate to the dog's structure and function? Yeah, and I'm really excited about that class because I've never seen a class like that anywhere. I think it's a very relevant class, and I think um, I think obviously we all care about our dogs, but um, having having more background on that when we're picking equipment, especially when you're training the the knucklehead difficult dog, that that's <laughs> going to be a a really good thing, you know. Because I, I I sometimes really like to, to problem solve with difficult dogs, and I think I have some you know good techniques, but I think maybe. Uh, using their anatomy because I can only imagine the wrong equipment if it's hurting the dog and I don't realize that all I'm doing is is causing myself extra training to try to figure out mm-hmm. why why is he so resistant to the training so I can only imagine that understanding picking the right equipment for the dog and his anatomy is, is only going to help trainers and handlers immensely oh and that's the hope yeah. And then the last class, you're going to do uh, breed predisposition to disease and an update on bloat. What, uh, what are you going to talk about in that one? One of the things that we see as veterinarians, um, within certain breeds, there, is a, there will be an increased number of cases that come in or a proportion of cases of particular diseases. And we pay attention to that when we are making our diagnosis. We take that breed into account. The breed, predisposition, breed predispositions to disease can be you know, just genetic uh, components for the disease itself or maybe body structure that predisposes them to, to some problems down the road. And the focus of that talk is really to make sure that people are aware when they are choosing a, a, a dog or have a dog, what diseases do I need to worry about? So if, yeah. I, if I'm working a German Shepherd, if, I, if I'm selecting a German Shepherd, what are some of the risks that I'm taking on because of breed predisposition to particular diseases? And then um, what do I need to watch for? If I'm working a, a Shepherd sure. or a Malinois, um, I, there, there are some signs maybe I need to watch for because in this breed, there is a particular problem that has these signs that I need to follow up on. So it's really focused on that. And then bloat in particular 
focusing on that as a separate topic. We do see breed predisposition to bloat in German shepherds, in bloodhounds. We also see it a lot in Labradors and mouths. So uh, talking about that specifically, and because that is, working dogs generally are the breeds that get yeah. bloat. And it is such an immediately life-threatening condition that knowing what are, what are the signs that might key me in onto, you know, that my dog's having a problem uh, and what yeah. do I do from there? You know, what's going on in the dog? What do I need to, what can I do right then and there yeah. to help? And then, you know, basically it's not a disease that anybody's going to treat. Um, at home, yeah. if the dog has a torsion, they need to get to a veterinarian, but there are things that can happen in the meantime that can help uh, get us towards a better outcome. Sure. So if, you, if, if you're out with it, I'd like to kind of go a little bit deeper onto this subject of bloat today. Um, I, and hopefully uh, you'll have time because you have such a, a deep background in the things you're talking about. Each one of those can be a, another Hits Radio episode. So I'm going to sure. be hitting you up a lot because I know our, our listeners are going to want to hear this. But in each one of these episodes, I like to find one topic and kind of discuss it. And I really would like to kind of dig deep into to bloat for a few minutes. And um, I was telling you earlier that when I train my handlers, I, you know, I try and get them as paranoid about bloat as possible and all the stuff I've learned over the years about it um, because I'm very paranoid about it because I don't want to lose a dog to it. So I try to really drill that into them. But I think a lot of even my education and I've, I've tried to, you know, go to classes and learn and I've talked to a lot of vets about it, but some of that is kind of hand me down from previous trainers or, or other, other um, sources that maybe aren't the technical uh, side of it that, that you certainly would have. So I'd like to take a few minutes in this episode and maybe go to a few basic things, maybe explain what bloat is. I, I, I would hope all of our listeners know about it, but just in case they're not, 100% sure, understand what it is, kind of explain what it is. If there's any, um, uh, as I understand it, we don't know exactly what causes it, but if we can just talk about what some of the, the dogs that are more prone to it, um, I think the, the large, deep-chested dogs, for example. If we just talk about those kind of things and, and feeding and watering and what we could do to, to minimize our risk at this point. Sure. So bloat is, the term bloat is what we usually um, used to refer to dogs that have gastric dilatation volvulus, which is obvious because it's a lot easier to say, uh, <laughs> the, or GDV. So what happens in these dogs is that the stomach dilates, uh, and it may be full of fluid or air or um, food, but we get dilation of the stomach, and in some of the dogs, the stomach w will rotate on itself. Now, you know, there, there are some nuances that probably don't make a huge amount of difference to, to the handler. It's not always, we're not certain whether the bloat happens first, where the stomach enlarge or the, or the twist happens first. Probably it happens either way, but, th but both the distension of the stomach and potentially the twisting of the stomach, uh, are part of this syndrome. It's something that happens mostly in larger large to giant breed dogs and in deep chested dogs. However, it can happen in any dog. Uh, we see it in cats and some other animals as well. So it's, it, it's just that we do have breed predispositions in many of the large and giant breed dogs. I think this has, the, the 
this has been a subject of research for all of my veterinary career. It, it's been something that has been looked at intensely, and you, you are correct that we still do not really know the exact underlying cause. And there have been all sorts of things proposed as, uh, as elements that sure. predispose the dog to getting into trouble. Um, so things like, uh, well, uh, eating and then exercising right after eating, and uh, using a food of a particular type or, yeah. you know, and then people have addressed this by trying to do things like, well, I'm going to use elevated feeders. I'm going to feed a small kibble. I'm going to water the food and you know, water it down in advance. And really, there are very few things that have been found to actually have a close association. But the, many, many things have been looked at, sure. and those are some of the things that I go over in the presentation, or what are the specifics that we've looked at from a research standpoint, and did we find an association or not? Sure. Um, the predisposition, other than just breed, um, older dogs, see, it's, it's more likely to happen in an older dog than in a younger dog, and dogs that... Um, have a a close relative that has had mm -hmm. GDV, um, and dogs that eat that eat just one meal a day. So older dogs, deep-chested dogs, dogs with a relative, you know, parent, sibling, um, offspring that have had GDV. Um, surprisingly, underweight dogs. There may be an association there with being underweight. But for the most part, the type of food and all these other things really have not played out to be uh, really strongly associated with um, bloat and, and yeah. torsion, which is frustrating because if we don't really know the underlying cause and we can't identify a whole lot of factors, it really limits what we can do. So I think it's key that handlers are aware of what the signs might be. So first of all, what you're doing to kind of plant that seed of fear, um, you know, that's kind of, to me, a healthy fear because yeah. that, that, that sort of concern drives me to be very vigilant about what's going on with the dog because I know something can happen. Yep. I hope it doesn't, but if it does, at least I'm not, you know, at least I'm not three steps behind even being aware that something can happen. The initial signs sometimes aren't really all that dramatic. So it, it, dogs tend to be, they're uncomfortable. So they tend to be a little agitated. They may be pacing. They may just appear uncomfortable. And I think that's one of the things that is really key is handlers learn about reading their dogs for mm -hmm. a lot of things. This is one of them. Healthcare is, is another reason to be able to read your dog. It's sure. not just about odor detection. Yep. And knowing your dog and and i think that's you know if if we if we're charged with the care of a dog we are the dog's advocates and i think sometimes things like this where there can be some subtle initial signs maybe somebody is going oh he looks okay to me well if we as the person most most knowledgeable about that dog thinks something's wrong stick yeah. to your guns you yeah. know and 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 pursue that. Um, I and, think and that's what in, I drill into my handlers is abnormal restless behavior is, you know, that, that seems like 
from what I understand, that's one of the first things to really look for. And, um, and is, is that what, what you would kind of say too? Just that. Yes. And obviously that can be a lot of different things. Sure. Some of the things that are maybe a little more specific would be a dog that is trying to vomit, but nothing comes up. Uh, a dog that is having some breathing problems. Now, again, those can have different underlying causes. And the other thing I think handlers should should recognize is that veterinarians would far rather have you err on the side of being yep. cautious. Yeah. And you know that you know it, it, you the veterinarian that you're working with should be very receptive to double checking that dog if there is any concern and you know it there may also there are some dogs that may actually show even more specific signs where you notice that the abdomen's distended yeah okay again you know a dog that eats a meal it may be evident that the abdomen looks you know the belly looks a little bit bigger the flank looks a little bit fuller than normal that would be to me a dog to watch and if it looks comfortable probably okay but just keep an eye on it but if there's any question just go in you know sure. the combination of a dog that's uncomfortable any distension of the abdomen difficulty breathing um those would be the times to say hey i think something's going on there are sure. also some things if the abdomen is you know if that belly is obviously distended um there are also some things just kind of flicking the side and if it's really taut um, that would be supportive that that's, you know, that, that that's really a dis very distended stomach. And there are some things that veterinarians can work with handlers to teach them, okay, here's what you could do at, at home or wherever you are in the moment while you're planning to, to come on in and get them checked out. And we'll talk about some of those things with, you know, with sure. trying to pass a stomach tube or carrying a trocar those are things that can be done before the dog gets in that might make things turn out better down the road. But sure. that's where you, it's going to be important to work with your veterinarian to uh, learn about those techniques. First. Sure. So, and, and like I live in a large city. Um, so generally uh, I would think my best option when I start seeing this is get straight to the, the nearest large vet that can handle it, isn't it? As opposed to trying yes. to get home. Yes. So, but, you know, I think there are some, some factors, a dog that is really bloated and really in trouble breathing, yeah. where if, if that's something, for example, with a trocar, that's something that you can do in 30 seconds that might give the dog enough relief yeah. and prevent worsening of the signs while you're on the way. Okay. So, but yeah, that's a very good point is, is this is not something to, to play around with at home and then decide, well, maybe I better get in this. It would mostly be, I would think of it. Same thing is if, if someone has a, a, an external wound that's hemorrhage and that we do something to try to stop yeah. the hemorrhage or stem the hemorrhage while we're on the way. Okay. Uh, to get definitive care. It's not a definitive therapy where, where they don't need to get in to see the vet. Because in, in the best scenario, when I see the early signs and I get this dog straight to the vet, this is a grim, grim outlook at, at best, even at that. If everything lines up good, I, I'm, the dog's in serious trouble, isn't he? The dog is definitely in serious trouble. And I think one of the things... Uh, while it is a very critical illness, uh, the, the 
statistics on outcome for dogs that have that get veterinary care is 84% or around there that that do well now in 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 dogs that go to surgery for this mm-hmm. now in some patients once they get to the veterinarian and and material gets moved off their stomach not all of these patients need to go to surgery if they have a twist then they need to go to surgery uh, but the ones that the dogs that are distended without a twist, uh, sometimes just getting the air and fluid off of the stomach may be adequate. Now, okay. those dogs may, you know, your veterinarian may talk about surgery down the road because there is actually preventative surgery. And I think that's another really important message about load is there is surgery that can be done ahead of time in the types of dogs that tend to get bloat that helps prevent um them getting into okay. a problem or if they get into a problem they don't get the twist which yeah. makes their problem much more manageable and that's what i did want to touch base with you on that it's called uh, gastropexia i believe isn't it correct so uh, most of my dogs here in our city we've been fortunate that uh, the vets give us a, a pretty good deal and our city doesn't mind paying for that so we get most of our dogs pexied do you recommend that and can you kind of explain maybe what that is Yes. So what the the PEXI procedures, and there are a number of different specific ways to do that that the veterinary surgeons need to pay attention to, but basically the the bottom line is securing the stomach to the body wall so it can't twist. Um, So, you know, rather than having a dog that bloats and then might twist where that is the most most severe case that we see are the ones that twist, we're preventing the twist. Now, those dogs can still bloat. They still can get a problem with distension. Um, even so, it's less severe, so it's le- less life-threatening. Still needs medical care, but we're not looking at the, the yeah. uh, dogs that are going to have um, necrosis of the stomach and things like that. Yeah. And it also does reduce the number of dogs that are going to go on and, and have a problem. So, for example, if we look at dogs that had a problem with bloat, um, and were treated and then had the PEXI afterwards versus they were treated with bloat and didn't have a PEXI afterwards, the PEXI does reduce recurrence of the disease, even the do- in the dogs that have already bloated, so we know they're predisposed. Sure. And then the other thing is is reducing the chance of getting bloat and if they, if they get bloat, getting the twist with the PEXI before they ever have a problem. And in, you know, in, in dogs that are, if, if, we're talking about a uh, female dog that's going to be spayed, you know, kind of combining those surgeries yeah. might be an option. Um, in the male, it's going to be an entirely um, standalone procedure to do that, but it is something that it's not something that involves a lot of time off work. Um, it's not an extended recovery period, yeah. et cetera. Uh, but that, that really is, is beneficial. And I think the key is to make sure that people are aware of that and and when I mentioned before about um, staging what we do with the, the working dogs that are coming in here, they come in for an initial evaluation. We don't do the PEXI that that yeah. visit. We, we want to see, is this a dog that's going to work yeah. out or not? Yeah. And then if they work out, they're not going to come back in for the PEXI. So, and then I guess one thing I did want to mention is that it, like the last few dogs in our unit that we got PEXI'd, the vet, um, I don't think it was as familiar with working dogs as maybe some others. So she actually had asked if we wanted the um, laparoscopy or I don't know the traditional surgery and the traditional one is 
pretty invasive. So I guess if people are listening, uh, hopefully you agree with me, but I would encourage to do it laparoscopic. So that way, you know, I think the downtime is usually two or three weeks at the moment. Right. Right. So that's a, a much smaller incision. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the other, another consideration is in, in addition to the downtime, um, these, we're talking about dogs who do not like to be doing nothing. Yeah. And if we're asking them to do a reduced amount of activity, um, then we want to make sure that they don't have a big incision uh, yep. to which to, t- to turn their attention. And yeah. uh, so laparoscopic incisions are very small. Obviously, we do whatever we can to keep dogs away from those incisions, but um, they seem to be sometimes one step ahead of, of us in figuring out how to how to foil our attempts yeah. to keep them safe. So. <laughs> Especially these dogs. The, uh, so what would be a couple of things like, um, you know, I've always done it, and I mean, I, I assume uh, it's probably still a good idea, but I'm real careful about how much water my dogs get when we're training them hard. I'm real careful about feeding them and having – you know, I'd like to have at least an hour, preferably two before they work. Are, are those just uh, kind of myths or are those things that we should still be really careful about? I th- There are many of those things that have been looked at at least once to see if there is an association. And unfortunately, there can be some muddy waters in here because, you know, and it, one of the things when we talk about research, it's important. This is really important to keep in mind for everyone. Is we're talking about a very specific time period, specific dogs, and a sure. specific set of circumstances that were set up. And you know, the bottom line is, if you knew every single thing you had to control, you really wouldn't need the research project because you already know what yeah. the whole what the whole deal is. Yeah. So there are always shortcomings of any research. Um, study. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, the best information we have is that which comes from controlled situations. And the, the things that um, emerge from the standpoint of a full stomach, the, the one association that comes through in all of these studies is the dogs that just eat once a day. And I'm going to extrapolate and say that means they eat a lot all at yeah. one time yeah. rather than having their food divided into at least two meals. So that finding suggests that the amount of stomach filling may, or, or stomach weight, because yeah. the food has a weight, um, plays a role. There has not been an association made with water, but water has weight and, you know, the dog that forgets to drink and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, and then drinks the whole bowl, is that a problem? It has not been shown to be a problem. But that's where I think some of the, you know, having a back and forth communication between handlers and trainers with veterinarians is really important because the dogs that in these studies are, for the most part, not law enforcement canines that are working. You know, they, and, and they're, they're not, they're often not going to be dogs that are going to be doing these extreme activities. So the best information we have there is information from military working dogs. And again, that's where some other trends emerge. For example, that we see this in, in mouths, because that's not something that other studies really have divulged. Uh Um, But as far as an association, other association with handling, those really have not emerged. Okay. Um, 
I think one of the things that I've always thought is that activity right after eating is a bad idea. I mean, we learned that when we went swimming yeah. as a kid is like, you have to wait an hour after you, you know, to go in the water. Um, and I think that it would still be wise to not do extreme activity, but there's actually a study that shows that maybe moderate activity may be a little bit helpful. Now, when I say moderate, I mean pet dog moderate. Not not Malinois, Dutchie, yeah. <laughs> moderate, but pet dog yeah. moderate. Sure. Uh, so again, there's a there's a lot of ifs that we you know that we can't definitively answer. And I think there we just have to use common sense. And you know, one of the things that I do with this presentation is work through the studies. And, you know, here are the results that we have. Here is something that really looks like, you know, we really do or don't need to do this. And here's something to consider if it's not, you know, if it works in, in your uh, management regimen, maybe yeah. do this, but there's not a strong piece of evidence that you have to do this. Yeah. But it's not gonna not gonna hurt the dog to be diligent about those things, I guess. So. Correct. Outstanding. Well, I think we've really gone through this pretty deeply, and I know in the class you're gonna be able to get much deeper in it, and I'm sure have some slides and more information. So, um, if you guys like this, uh, the listeners, if you like this topic and you like um, these types of topics, obviously uh, hits canine.net. We'll get you our schedule, show you all the different classes we have. And also uh, Dr. Ridgway's biography is on there. So you can kind of learn a little bit more about her and you can read all of her class descriptions along with everybody else's. So hits canine.net. We'll be in Chicago this year, uh, August 13th. Uh, you're getting close to, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, not sure what day I'm going to air it, but you're getting very close to the rates going up a little bit so uh, sooner rather than later get yourself registered uh, you can do all that at hitscanine.net and doctor i appreciate taking the time out today i know you're a busy person so i appreciate it and i look forward to uh you know doing several more shows with you if you're good for that great thank you thank you hits radio is brought to you by the professionals at hits training and consulting don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference coming to the McCormick Center in Chicago, Illinois this August. HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net.